AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for November 29th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined online by John Markley. Uh, John, you're a mobile security or mobility security analyst, and uh, welcome to the program today. Yep, thank you, Brian. So what keeps you busy? <laughs> Life is mobile now, so everything keeps me busy. <laughs> so yeah, anything to do with uh, well, uh, you know, the, the little devices we carry in our pockets 24 by 7 uh, is something I'm interested in. Right. So you've been looking at sort of vulnerabilities of devices and how we need to be prepared for those and vulnerabilities associated with the infrastructure itself, making sure that it's uh, not vulnerable to attack and uh, any others that I've missed. Uh, that's, I mean, that's it. It's, it's like from end to end, you want to make sure that it's, it's secure and, and provides not only a service, but also a secure service. All right. Very good. Welcome to the program. We have Matt Kaiser here. Matt, you're a security analyst and busy with a number of things. A number of things. What's been keeping you busy lately? Uh, reading spec sheets for a TR-069 and TR-064. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Uh, we have John Hoglund here, lead security analyst, and you're always digging into something new and... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's new. <laughs> <laughs> but there's yeah. a lot of things. Repeats of this. Of, uh, yeah. Actually, that's one of the things uh, you know I've been saying for years that you know the the threats don't really. There's not real big um, revolution in the threats. It's right, really right, evolution right. of threats. So yeah. we see a lot of the same things kind of come back. We have been tracking big botnets years right. ago, right. and they kind of sort of diminished a little bit. But then when they had you know virtual currency come into play, so that they could do extortion attacks and also to be able to do anonymized purchase of denial of service attacks, the botnet and IoT being a contributor to that, the big botnets have kind of come back. So we've been talking about that. We're going to talk about it a little bit more, right? Yeah. All right. Um, not to mention ransomware. Ransomware, right? too, yeah. <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, so let's get right into it here. And John, you uh, mentioned that you're paying attention to the uh, security of mobility. And, you know, we tend to think about s cellular devices, but Wi-Fi is all over the place now. So what can you tell us about being safe? Yeah, it's, there's not a lot of safety <laughs> out there. I, that's what I'll tell you. Uh, it, it was funny. I just got back from a trip to uh, Washington, D.C., and one of the things I always do when I go on these trips is check in a hotel or in the airplane, who what hotspots are talking to one another? I mean, mm -hmm. it's funny. You you think of, you know, that there shouldn't be anything or only legitimate ones, but even in a normal, you know, location, there's always seems to be a, a fake one out mm -hmm. there, a bad Wi-Fi. So so this uh, uh, SkyCure and Risk IQ did actually did a study recently where they were checking on like malls and whatever from a shopping perspective. But I think it makes across the board uh, an interest on how to, you know, want monitor and look for and think about your, your, your Wi-Fi hotspots, including those ones like that say they're free or, uh, you know, open for anyone to use. So I, I just kind of wanted to give some tips and some ideas here. You know, the, the things to, to kind of watch out for mm -hmm. is when it says it's free, uh, tan staff, all right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, you gotta you gotta be careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, anybody can be a Wi-Fi hotspot now, right? Because yeah. it, you know, exactly. anybody with a mobile device, they can turn on personal. Right. I always put free as my SID name, 
for my personal life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But that, you know, that's a, certainly a legit possibility that folks folks could do and uh, try to capture you. But go ahead. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. And, and you know, and and it's the other one that you get that kind of surprises you is when you'll see something like a bank or a business, and you think, oh, that's that's got to be legitimate, or maybe that's their corporate one. You know, how hard is it just to name something? You know, just generic. You know, company name, right? It's it's easy to do, mm-hmm. and, and and so this this study actually even talks about that they saw a lot of things like where there was a store hotspot named hotspot, but there was no store in the mall, you know, that was named that that mm-hmm. store, so mm-hmm. or it was on the other end of the mall. So it was it was those things that you just got to be we be careful with, and, and even today we see a lot of stories about you know, uh, oh, if you want to use this hotspot, you need to install our app. You know, and here's how to get the app. And the app is on some third-party app store. Or it's, you know, click mm-hmm. this link to get it. Those are all things that, you know, kind of, you know, should make you a little queasy. And and just think about, you know, what, what you need to do. And it's, it's the same stuff we tell people. You know, be aware of what you're doing. Don't connect to things you don't know. Make sure your devices are updated. Um, you know, know what's on your device, you know, what permissions you might have. And, and, and also, if you can, use a VPN, you know, especially when you're on a company business. Mm-hmm. I always use a VPN, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that way, even if it's a fake one, you know, hopefully, you know, they're not going to get very much other than that initial handshake because even they're not going to make the connection back to my company. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. And, you know, we were talking earlier, there is that even if you're not on a business, if you're really concerned about security, especially, for example, if you're connecting to a sensitive website or something like that, you know, we always like to encourage layers of security. You don't necessarily want to depend on the security of the website by itself. And, you know, anybody on that Wi-Fi connection could be monitoring what's going on and uh, might have a way to sort of crack the security of the website or something. So, uh, Matt, I think you were saying that there are some commercial uh, VPN services that consumers could purchase. Sure. So the one that I'm most familiar with is uh, private internet access, and I don't want to use this as a you know platform to sell their product. No, we're not. But this I, is an endorsement. This is not an endorsement. It's just an example. But I will say that they they make it very easy for you to set up the app and and configure the mm-hmm. the VPN. There are a couple other antivirus companies that actually offer it as uh, a service as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not all are created equal. I would look for ones that have a well-established reputation mm-hmm. rather than the cheapest ones because even though it's a VPN and it's providing you some security from people inspecting your traffic on the outside, your traffic is flowing through their servers. It is through their servers. And so, so you have to, to give them a level. who you trust, right? Exactly. Whether you trust the unknowns on the Wi-Fi connection or somebody that you're actually uh, you know, acquiring services from and presumably have a privacy agreement associated with it. Exactly. Right. Yes. And the extra advantage, I think, of using a VPN, well, first of all, a lot of devices, mobile devices, have that as a function that you can just turn on for the, the entire transport layer. Mm-hmm. So, like, no matter what you do. Um, and the reason I think that's a good idea is because even though you have your phone and you might be, like, going to certain websites, you might not know all the other things that are going on in the background that point. are not encrypted. Um, mm-hmm. There's all kinds of, like, your email and various um, apps that are running in the background doing you know, mm-hmm. check-ins and things that may or may not be encrypted. Well, so. we stumble across sites that have cross-site scripting problems, all kinds of things all the time. So it would help to at least protect you in the context of that environment, right? Right. Well, it's yeah. even just just sharing cookies or handshakes. You know, those are all mm-hmm. a lot right. of times unencrypted. Right. And you don't know what they put into that cookie. You know, they might have put your password into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just don't know. Okay. Well, very good. And, you know, uh, I guess one other thing to sort of point out is that 
if you, uh, I mean, if you're forced to use Wi-Fi, I think some of these security controls are the are the way to do it. Uh, there may be circumstances where if you're not sure, or if you don't, you know, if you're not sure about the Wi-Fi or concerned about the sensitivity, turn the Wi-Fi off. Use, uh, you know, use your mobile access because that natively gives you a, a, a more dedicated connection than you would have otherwise. Okay, so uh, John Hoboom, let's go over to you here. And uh, of course, you know, we mentioned earlier, one of the enablers for some of the activities that are going on, the big botnets, the general service attacks, but also the ransomware, the ability to perform extortion attacks and right. you know, for the uh, extorters to receive anonymous currency is, is associated with that. So some of these bigger cases have been uh, coming up and this is a nice learning exercise. This was an here. interesting one. Um, there's kind of two pivots to this story. I have the initial story, but then also Krebs, Brian Krebs did some research that mm -hmm. has uh, extracted a lot of additional nuggets. So basically the first, um, the first bullets on this story is that uh, no, uh, Saturday, November 26th, right after Thanksgiving, the uh, San Francisco Municipal Rail Station, their uh, ticketing systems were hit with a, uh, a form of ransomware. And it's the one that, I guess it manages those kiosks as well. And I don't know that those kiosks were compromised so much as the systems behind them were. Mm -hmm. The attacker uh, was able to put ransomware on about a thousand machines, he says. Um, mm -hmm. And then he um, was uh, claiming to want to extort 100 bitcoins as the ransom, mm -hmm. which is about $73,000 US. And, and this is fairly typical with all these, these extortion cases that they try to make it sort of a no-brainer. They just, holy cow, they're, I mean, they're, they're probably, right. I mean, at least for the municipal authority here, the, the rail authority, they're probably losing that much in revenue in an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, And so they try to make it sort of a no-brainer, but the principle behind paying that ransom becomes a really sort of the question. But. Right, and their interim solution was on the machines, they put a little post-it note that says it's free today. Yeah. So you're right, they were losing money uh, until they were able to recover. Um, they did not pay the ransom, just FYI. They did have backup systems, so they were able Good to, to recover. And I guess I should also mention, it looks like the ransomware did something with the boot sector, too, because uh, it looks like when it was booting it, mm -hmm. they showed a screen that shows that there was no um, uh, boot sector to boot up. It's just you know, it replaces the boot sector with that warning message, right? Probably. I, I'm not quite sure yeah. okay. the exact details of what you happened. There. I mean, you could probably just get away with doing a little boot sector yeah, you just Magic change the boot sector, even. and yeah, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. Unless they claim to have encrypted the file. So. Who get, I, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, in any event, the more interesting angle of the story is that Brian Krebs, along with some anonymous security researcher, and I'll point out that it was anonymous because what he did was probably in the grayer areas of what is legal. Absolutely. Um, he was able to take that uh, email address that the um, attacker was using for the ransomware. That's the email you'd reach back to to, to you know, send your ransom to. Mm -hmm. um, and he was able to uh, break into that email account up on Yandex, uh, which is an email service. And uh, he was able to kind of see through his inbox that not only was this you know, uh, San Francisco Municipal Authority a victim, but there were a lot of other victims, mostly in... Um, uh, what was it, uh, manufacturing construction firms based in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, and many of them did pay the ransom. Uh, he was able to see about, at the low order, at least $140,000 worth of uh, ransom was paid, which is pretty significant, mm -hmm. uh, between like August and now. On one hand, it's significant, but 
given that this particular ransom was on the order of about $73,000 right. or so, perhaps it's only a couple of others, but right. I mean, right. it's at least from, uh, from that attacker's point of view, perhaps not a lot of work having to be done to get $140,000. Right, right, right. They also, you know, in the inbox, you, they were able to find some of the like subscription registration information for some of the web servers that were, the attacker was using as part of his infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And by going into there, they were able to find more interesting nuggets like what tool sets they were using to scan um, and look for exploits on the targets and what targets they were scanning and what they had found and what times they were operating. They also found that almost exclusively all of the source IPs that logged in to work with the web server came from Iran. Hmm. Whether that means that they were in Iran, it's hard to say, but it was about 300 unique IP addresses. So mm -hmm. that's a pretty good distribution. And we know that um, in the Middle East, they tend to use a lot. They have a very uh, robust DHCP recycling policy. It's very short because uh, we see that a lot with other malicious activities. So that's possible that it really did come from Iran, mm -hmm. wherever the attacker came from. Okay. Um, there were a couple other interesting nuggets like names uh, and whatnot. I would recommend people go check out the Krebs article because there's a lot more detail that I'm not going to cover in here uh, to extract out of there. But I guess some of the things, you know, with ransomware in general that are probably good things to think about, have a really good backup strategy. Make sure that not only is it working, that if you, you should practice recovering how to go through the process should the day come. Uh, it's not going to, you know, throw you for a loop uh, when it does happen. Uh, have really good end user awareness programs, um, system patches, make sure all your patches on your desktops and your servers are up to date. I also link in here uh, a pretty good article, or not an article, a bulletin from the FBI about ransomware attacks. It's a recent bulletin I think they put out in September, uh, just kind of warning everybody about it because they, I guess they're kind of picking up on this activity. And it also has some guidelines if you are a victim of ransomware, especially as a company or commercial sector, to kind of uh, ping them back so that they can get some details mm -hmm. and kind of track some of this information better in terms of how many types of events like this happen. Yeah. You know, one thing I think it's important to kind of to distinguish here is that there is ransomware that sort of has been being sent out an email mm -hmm. quite aggressively uh, to a lot of organizations. And um, that is what, you know, it's basically just a, a random attack activity. Whereas this appears to be a case where somebody has targeted an organization. We don't know exactly how they got in. No, I, I don't think correctly. they say exactly. Was yeah. it an Oracle bug? Well, I mean, they say that the tool sets that were on the attack server were focused on Oracle bugs and a web logic, uh, mm -hmm. unserializable vulnerable exploit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they right. got into the okay. but, it, but it does at least suggest target. that there's targeted activity involved right. here. So it may have started with a spear fish to get inside and perhaps used exploits against the database platform or maybe it was exposed to the, whatever the right. reason. Right. But the, uh, the, so this is an example of what I believe had been taking place earlier where they were targeting health organizations, you know, people's health at stake and, you know, kind of um, provoking folks to want to, pay the ransom. I don't know if it was the same group that's uh, involved in this case, but distinguishing that this is a case where they're going in, they're targeting servers and uh, basically holding the data on the servers for ransom as opposed to, you know, the, the email based right, stuff the that just gets user. on endpoints and, uh, 
you know, might be a, a more expendable platform, you know, to go and re-image it, not worry about restoring the data kind of thing, right. you know, impacts one employee or something along those lines. But nevertheless, it is important to understand this distinction between the two, sort of random attacks versus a, a target attack. This one, clearly, they were going after that organization, whether it was opportunistic or not, is another perhaps right, question. Right. Uh, the other thing I probably should have done is I wonder how far $140,000 U.S. gets you in Iran. I have no idea. That would be interesting to <laughs> see no what idea. that translates to. Yeah. It would be interesting. So thank you, John. That's a, a good story and actually a, an interesting uh, part of the investigation. You know, incidentally, I'm sure there would have been a legal process that he could have gone through to gain access to those facilities and hopefully it didn't. It probably uh, would have taken a very long time. Actually, well, it possibly <laughs> would have. That's a that's a good point. It would, certainly not within three days or whatever. You know, yeah. that's since this happened. So well, it certainly wouldn't be out in the public domain in three days. So right. that's a that is a, clearly a different matter. All right, so uh, John Markley, let's go over to you, and um, I think you have a little, a very quick quiz for us. Yeah, and this one's and this one's kind of you know again, you know, as IoT continues to grow, I think we need to consider. You know, how much do we have in our, in our business, in our offices, or in our homes? How much uh, connected devices we have? So, so IHS uh, Market did a, a study, and they actually produced this. And one of the things that they found was how many connected devices worldwide are there? And then specifically in North America, do we have per household? So I thought that would be a good, good, good point to discuss. Mm -hmm. so, so, the, so simple quiz. In North America, the average number of connected devices per household is either A4, B9, C13, or D20. All right. John, do you... I was doing the math in my head. Um, so I don't know count, if I'm an average counting. American household. You're not. You're not. But <laughs> I'm going to say, like, it's either... I'm going to go with... I'm going to go conservatively nine. And you're not. But it's probably more like 13 in yeah. my house. I was just counting them what all What are you up. saying, Matt? In my house, it's more like 20, but I'm going to go with more 13. More like 20? Yeah, I was thinking I was going to go with 13. Because you got to figure... I mean, kids have an impact right so because right. you end yeah, up with gaming thing, right? boxes everybody's got phones right you've got four, like uh, maybe yeah yeah multiple Game consoles phones. connected television if you got one mm -hmm. dvr D oh, sure that's yeah amazon um, echo playstation uh, yep uh, your router <laughs> if you count that yeah um mm -hmm. let's go big your computers computers yep uh any smart home devices we're already at 10 yeah mm -hmm. so already at 10 john do you happen to know how many households are in the in north america Roughly. You know, I, I was just kind of trying to do the math here. I'm kind of wondering, you know, they're only really about, I think it's 2.7 billion usable addresses in IPv4 address space. Mm -hmm. And I think it almost will be consumed here. I'm going to go with C. Uh, I'm going to stick with Matt here. So I'm going to say B. You're going to say B. I'm going to okay. go low because I figure there's a lot of households that might not be as... Mm -hmm. You know, you got to look at the demographics of right, the right. United States. Okay. Anyway, so what do we have here? So, so worldwide, the answer is A four. Oh, are you? North, North America, but North, but North, but that's world. Now, let's talk North America. North, 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 yeah, North America is thirteen. So you guys uh, are right, right there, there in the ballpark. But I, I'll say this: I counted my own. I have twenty-two in my house. 22. So there you go. So you're you're pushing you're you're pushing the the statistics here, John. Yeah, and, I, well, and you start thinking about things like your Uverse receiver. 
right? You know, mm-hmm. you know, those are connected to the internet. You know, the it's really anything that's got an IP address turns into a connected device. Okay. All right. Very good. And I'm told that there are about 125 million homes in, in North America, which would be, um, you know, on the order of about, uh, you know, one and a half billion or so addresses being used up here, although a lot of those are on the local network. The 13 right. devices are probably on a, uh, you know, a private added. network yep. and added to a, uh, a single address on the Internet. But it's still, uh, uh, I think, significant to, uh, to consider. So thanks, John. That was a, that's an interesting question. I think uh, maybe we can bring that up again next year and see how that yeah. statistic See where the changed. number goes. Yeah. All right, so let's take a look at the internet weather, and we're going to start with this, and then we're going to go off and talk with Matt a little bit about this. But uh, we'll start with scan probes and sources on port 7547 TCP. Uh, This is CPE web management protocol, right? CPE WAN management protocol? WAN management protocol. Yeah, thank you very much, Matt. So uh, nevertheless, so we're seeing a really significant increase over the last couple of days in the amount of probing activity, hundreds of millions of probes per hour. And then on top of that, 200,000 unique sources on a given hour. And I think cumulative through the course of the day was on the order of about 840,000 or something like that. So okay. it was a significant diversity across those. We're going to dig into that a little bit further. but. So what's behind this port 7547? And Matt, I think we're gonna go to you and you're gonna give us a scoop, right? I will give you the scoop. Uh, I will not be the first. There were some really excellent write-ups done by the ISC. A lot of chatter. A lot of chatter. Uh, There's a a blog, Bad Cyber, that had a really good write-up as well. There's a Mm -hmm. number of folks. And actually the person who developed this vulnerability in the first place, developed the exploit that made it into Metasploit, had a really good write-up on it as well. Mm. So a whole bunch of different sources coming to this little report. Um, so 7547 TCP is typically used for what's called TR069, which is that CWMP, CPE, WAN management protocol. And for those who don't know, CPE stands for customer premise equipment. So it's mm-hmm. sort of an ISP term for the devices that bridge your network to a customer's network. Mm-hmm. Usually a cable modem or a DSL modem or things like that are customer premise equipment. And TR069 is a protocol for remotely managing them, as the name would suggest. Uh, TR064 is the LAN equivalent of that kind of a protocol. So you can send commands to the device and make configuration changes. So what we see here, and- It's supposed to be only on the LAN. I'm getting there. So (laughs) TR064 is the LAN side, TR069 is the WAN side. Keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So the bug itself was found against a couple different models of router, uh, one of which was Deutsche Telekom's speed port. I don't remember Mm -hmm. the exact model name. And there was another one from Ireland, I believe, that was also affected. The attack sends a post request that speaks TR064 to this port. Mm-hmm. Now that should sound weird to you, and it is. Going on, it's, it sets the set NTP servers function, and within that field where it's supposed to say, these are my NTP servers, it contains uh, command injection text. So there's a command injection vulnerability where it expects an IP address, you give it a command, and it runs that command arbitrarily. Mm. So Metasploit had a, um, a module for this bug on 11.08, and now we're seeing it being used in botnet scanning activity and mass exploitation. Mm-hmm. So I can go on a little bit about how this malware yeah, propagates. Sometimes it uses TFTP or WGET to pull the payload down, uh, scans for Telnet as well, which mm-hmm. I think we'll see later. That was a little uptick in Telnet scanning about the same time. Yeah. Uh, and then it closes 7547 behind it. 
which mm. is another tactic we've seen where they don't want anyone else to exploit the box, so they close the port. Mm -hmm. And they also close Telnet, which it also scans for and exploits on. So it's closing doors behind itself. Right. Well, and I think this is one of the symptoms, and I think we have a little bit of evidence perhaps in that, and later on in the program here where there may be botnets trying to capture resources associated with other botnets, yep. which tends to cause the botnet operators to do more to defend their resources. Um, as the Mirai botnet was kind of building, I think it was sort of the only game in town in that space, or at least the most aggressive. Mm -hmm. They weren't really doing a lot to defend themselves. Now it looks like some things are happening to try to defend resources and perhaps gain access to other resources, which is a you know, a little bit of an infighting activity, so to speak, but. Sure, once, but once that sort of thing gets into the news, like once a good exploit yeah. makes it out there, of course you're gonna have three or four copycats, mm -hmm. a handful, maybe not three or four, but significant number of people trying those same exploits. Yeah. I talked about how TRO69 is a WAN protocol, TRO64 is a LAN protocol. Surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, after all the IoT junk we've seen, some devices listen for both the WAN and LAN protocols on the same port on a WAN interface, which means mm -hmm. that someone's listening for a LAN protocol unauthenticated on the internet. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the command injection vulnerability, the service is offered on the wrong interface. Correct, right. and this is a management service. So even if this bug didn't exist, you could tamper with the device. You could say, mm -hmm. set the NTP server to something arbitrary. Right. If it had a function for DNS, you could set that. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, oh. If it had that function, yeah, I haven't yeah. actually checked it's the spec. DNS servers. Okay, There's okay. a lot of things that you could possibly do with this. So in general, Exposing TRO64 to the internet is a terrible mm -hmm. idea. So yeah. that's it's a double whammy here. Bad configuration and the existence of a vulnerability. And I guess the third item would be no authentication required. And no authentication right. required, okay. which is really something. So I looked a little bit at the reports about the malware itself. Um, there are two different payload versions. One is just a straight up binary. The other one is a script, like a bash script, mm -hmm. that goes and grabs a whole bunch of different versions of that binary. And we've seen this in IoT devices before, where they'll grab one that's supposed to run on ARM and run that one. And then they'll run the one that's supposed to run on MIPS, and whichever one just happens to run is the one that infects mm -hmm. the box, but they try them all. Mm -hmm. uh, which and is if it crashes the box, they just move on to the next one, right? Sure, you know, it's scanning <laughs> is cheap. Um, what I found interesting is there's a, in the script version, there's a URL to Instagram. And it's got a picture, like a poster for an event, and the title of the, the picture is Botnet 14. Hmm. Now, this is, this is infecting boxes with Mirai. And Botnet 14 was one of Mirai Tracker's names for one of the instances. So I think it's kind of a little joke for the people who may, these may or may not be the creators of Botnet 14 on Mirai Tracker, mm -hmm. but somebody is definitely keeping an eye on Mirai Tracker. Um, so there's at least two known affected devices, probably many more that haven't been found yet. Uh, the IR, E-I-R, I don't know how to pronounce it right, uh, D1000 wireless router, and the Speedport router from Deutsche Telekom. Mm -hmm. Deutsche Telekom has already provided a patch, and if you have that affected router, all you have to do is power cycle your box for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. It'll turn back on, call out to home, and get That's the new patch, nice. which is great. Now, the reason I say there may be more is that uh, one of the analysts found, one of the analysts on the web, not one of our guys, found that there's a Zyzel firmware that has the bug. And to me, that says that firmware will be used on more than one device. And no one, as far as I can tell, has found a comprehensive list of all devices running that mm -hmm. particular firmware. Well, I think we have a little evidence that that may exist. Yes, yeah. I think so. OK. So the big question is, we've got this problem. Now what can you do about it? So obviously, when you have a management port like this, I mean, I think there's a, it's a little bit difficult to say, because obviously, you don't want to expose LAN protocols on WAN interfaces. Mm -hmm. For good measure, you probably shouldn't be sharing 
two protocols on one port, especially if you've got a whole bunch, you've got 65,000 plus ports on any device, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. pick another one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you also, if you've got a management port, LAN or WAN, I mean, mostly for the WAN in this case, because that's where the exploitation comes from, limit the connections mm -hmm. to only known management services. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's no reason for everyone to be poking at this port, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Uh, All good points. And then last but not least, Include authentication. In include the authentication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that the, the protocol appears to need some modification to be able to uh, really be considered, in my opinion, would be a secure protocol. But Sure. What the nice thing is, though, the happy ending, the, sort of the silver lining or whatever you want to call it, is that Deutsche Telekom actually has a mechanism for updating these devices. Mm -hmm. And in most of the IoT cases we see, that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, that's so, actually a very good point. That's one yeah. of the, uh, I think I had created a list of about seven things that any network device should be capable of one is to update the software. <laughs> yep, and it, they made it super easy. Reboot the box. You don't even have to go to a menu or log in or anything. Just reboot it. All right, very good. All right, so just to put this into perspective here, there's been a lot of news about how this has affected Deutsche Telekom, but uh, based on our map of uh, the sources of activity that are performing the scanning activity, and this is looking at, um, I, I just picked a random hour, uh, where we had an alert associated with it, picked up 139,964 unique sources. And uh, I think I got that number right. Yeah, 864. Nevertheless, it shows uh, actually quite a lot of activity all through Europe and in the Middle East. Uh, also in China, looks like the Philippines, Australia, and uh, quite a bit in South America as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news is for folks, our viewers in the United States, not too much activity there, and, and, and perhaps you could say the same thing if you're living in Africa, except in South Africa, there's a little bit of activity there. Nevertheless, this certainly, uh, I, I think there's uh, some more cleaning up that's gonna need to take place mm -hmm. to uh, get these devices patched, patched and uh, clean, out that, uh, clean out that issue. And as you pointed out, hopefully a lot of these other devices have uh, software update capabilities as well. I mean, the whole point of this was to be able to manage those devices, Remotely, so yeah. hopefully, the remote management will be uh, able to rectify a good portion of this. One thing I will say about this view that we have of the sources scanning is that I think it's a much better representation because I've seen reports where people were saying, well, let's figure out the size of the botnet by scanning for port 7547. Yeah, yeah, you can't that do that. doesn't mean that, <laughs> especially in this case when you've yeah. already got the confusion of TR064 yeah. and There may be a lot port. of other devices that have that port open but aren't even vulnerable to right. the exploits that are being used here. Right, because the bug is in 064, is a LAN protocol, and this is a very special case. Right, absolutely. So uh, also a very good point. So scanning for the devices isn't going to necessarily find a thing unless you're looking for signatures of the specific devices that are known to be vulnerable. I had heard that there was, it was something to do with the, the ROM pager web server in particular, mm. uh, but I haven't, that's not concrete yet. Okay, all right, good deal. So um, thanks for bringing that, Matt. I think that's uh, you know sort of an important thing that people are going to be wanting to pay attention to over the next week or so here. And you know on perhaps a related topic, and uh, I'm going to say perhaps on a related topic, we saw some increase in activity uh, scan sources on port six sixty six TCP. Now, this one I found, and John, you had kind of helped point me in the, the right direction here. Mm -hmm has been associated with use as a C2 channel, as a command and control channel right. for the Mirai botnet malware. Although the Mirai botnet also tends to use other ports for its command right. and control Right, a lot of them well. use 23. Um, mm -hmm. But again, Mirai botnet is segmented. You know, there's different actors running their own versions. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like the same thing as the old Zeus days, you know, yeah. not one big Zeus bot now. You got all these different actors. So, yeah. so we've seen, uh, we have uh, seen that. Yeah, I have certainly before. seen cases where there was uh, malware analysis and there were a number of C2 uh, IP addresses that were uh, offering the service on port 666. So the theory here is that perhaps, I mean, this is clearly a botnet activity doing this. You can see because we're looking at this number of sources and it you know, jumped up to uh, about 2,500 sources right away. We see that telltale decay of activity as the uh, command is completed and then that the, the uh, botnet operator has clearly renewed that command a number of times. That's what each of those sawtooth spikes are on the, uh, on the graph. So this is botnet activity that's scanning on this port, perhaps looking for other command and control servers associated with Mirai botnet malware and uh, perhaps so they can gain visibility into what the other botnets are doing or perhaps uh, to even do something to try to take over those, those botnets. I'm speculating on that, that aspect of this, but uh, there's clearly some motivation for uh, scanning on this port and it seems to coincide relatively closely to some of this new activity that's taking place as well. And just taking a look at the geographic distribution of those sources, um, this particular example picked up 1,175 addresses, and they're pretty widely distributed across the internet, which is pretty consistent with uh, Mirai, you know, infected uh, a lot devices more anyway. US than yeah. uh, certainly than the last one, yes. <laughs> so looking at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, we still consistently have port 23 at the top of the list here. Uh, and that's followed by 7547 TCP. So uh, in terms of the number of probes, it's a little bit misleading. That's jumped up 142 places because we really didn't see any scanning on that port previously. That's followed by port 22 TCP, SSH, 3389 following that, which is a remote desktop protocol, 1900 UDP. We're gonna take a quick look at that later on, which is a SSDP relative of, or perhaps a, not a close relative, but a relative of the uh, land side management protocol that we were just looking at er earlier. And then uh, 80 TCP, there's web activity, followed by 1911 TCP, which is a uh, industrial control protocol, 21 TCP FTP, and then uh, 123 UDP, that's network time protocol. And then finally, 3306 TCP, which is Microsoft SQL database. Actually, it's not uh, Microsoft, MySQL. it's MySQL database. Thank you, John. Uh, but I did want to point out that a little farther down on the list, actually 1434 UDP did show up <laughs> as a, a, one of our you know, uh, anomalies, I should say. Uh, so uh, there has been a, a little bit of a surge in activity in scanning for database technologies, MySQL database, as well as Microsoft SQL database. Uh, but that just didn't happen to make the list here. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, and uh, here's a little bit of a switch where we had typically been seeing about three quarters of the sources being port 23 TCP. This is a case where port 7547 actually took the top spot here, moved up 338 spots in comparison to last week, which you know used to be 339 on the list. So significant number there, I, I don't recall specifically, but I think it was on the order of about 800,000 unique sources across the course of the day that we picked up on our network as a, a part of this analysis. Uh, that's followed by port 23 TCP, which is still a really significant source of activity. Uh, and then we have a number of ICMP ports that show up in the list here. Perhaps next time I should edit those out, but then uh, we have a port 445 showing up here, port 80 TCP showing up, 22 TCP and 21 TCP, all of which uh, we've uh, seen earlier. Just to take a little bit of a quick comparison between the amount of sources, the number of sources that are scanning, 
on 7547 TCP in a given hour compared with 23 TCP, that would be Telnet, looking at the last 30 days of activity, just over the last couple of days, 7547 is coming kind of close to the number of sources that port 23 had. But what's kind of interesting is it appears that a good portion of these sources are unique. We saw the geographic map of the concentrations of those, so it appears to be actually a new botnet uh, that did not really take away from and perhaps even contributed to some of these scanning activities on uh, on port 23. So mm -hmm. it, at first I thought maybe this was a case where they shifted resources from scanning on port 23 over to uh, 7547. That does not appear to be the case. The addresses appear to be new and uh, very much concentrated in specific ISPs that perhaps have some problems with the devices that need to get straightened out. Taking a little closer look at the activity on port 23 TCP, as I stated earlier, we, are see, we have been seeing over the last few weeks here some decrease in activity, or at least in the number of sources that are doing the probing activity. I think that has to do with uh, sort of the bifurcation or the breaking up of the Mirai botnet and sort of competing for resources that we're seeing that. But we did see, and I think Matt, you had mentioned that uh, some of these devices that are getting infected with whatever we're calling the malware. It's, uh, it's still Mirai. It's yeah, just it's a still Mirai. Of Mirai. It, you said it was button number 14, perhaps? Button at 14, potentially, but yeah. they may. Yeah. They may, they, I mean, they, they may be joking. They there's may no be... registry associated with those numbers, no. so you don't oh, sure. really know. <laughs> Oh, that's what we need, a botnet registry. Yeah, botnet registry. That would be <laughs> very helpful. The IBR. Uh, hey, if anybody goes for registry. it, why not? <laughs> yeah, so nevertheless, we do see uh, a little bit of a bump up in activity in terms of the number of sources as well as the number of probes that are taking place on port 23 that may be attributable, that increase being attributable to this uh, sort of not new botnet activity that's building up. And then looking at scan probes and sources on port 1900 UDP, that's a simple service discovery protocol. On the first top graph here, there's a lot of spiky activity because this port gets used for reflective denial service attacks. So what I did is I averaged that off over a 24 hour period to kind of smooth out the graph a little bit. And then you can see that there's a clear change in activity just over the last uh, couple of days here where we saw, and it, it has again that telltale sign of a botnet where it spikes up to a large number of sources that are doing the scanning activity. This is around 6,000 sources and then a decay pattern and then a spike up again. So uh, somebody is going around and looking for addresses that are servicing this port. Again, this is a LAN protocol. It shouldn't be exposed to the internet. Uh, but it can be useful for attackers that are doing reflective denial service attacks. So perhaps that new botnet that's being built up is also looking for reflectors to be able to facilitate denial service attacks. Uh, again, that's uh, speculation on my part. Just looking at the geographic map of those sources, it's predominantly coming out of Korea, South Korea in this case, not much else. So it may be that you know it's just a very focused part of the botnet that's doing that activity, or perhaps it's not related. I need to certainly recognize that I don't have any you know direct evidence that correlates the two between this new botnet activity and this particular activity that's taking place here. It is a significant number of sources, though, 3,151 sources that uh, are just showing up as a part of that graph. And then we have uh, just a couple of things to give an update. These did not show up in the significant activity, uh, so it's worthy to take a look at how the trends are moving here. Scan probes on, and sources on port 2323 TCP. This was the Microtech router that was servicing basically a Telnet service on port 2323 TCP. Uh, had some of the same issues as some of the others. That is uh, default passwords and the opportunity to uh, take over the device. And that activity has been sort of tapering off over the last uh, few weeks here. Uh, we did see a little bit of a spike 
in the number of sources. You can see a little sawtooth over the last, uh, I think, it was a little over a week ago, but that still is uh, kind of. And that was off. a Mirai in particular. That was, as well. a, that that was, was a piece of Mirai as well, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as was uh, perhaps this. Uh, activity. We had been reporting for quite some time on the activity on port 53413 UDP. Uh, you can see the activity back in July to August time period where we saw a significant probing activity and that again has been tapering off a sort of a lack of continued interest in, in finding those devices. Although I think they're still out there. I don't think that problem has necessarily been fixed. It's perhaps they've found other things that are a little easier or uh, more lucrative for them for the yeah, time. It's hard bar. to get much easier than the Netis vulnerability. Yeah, it's pretty it is a little hard to get easier. <laughs> Although, it, maybe the devices just aren't uh, as as well powered yeah. as some of the others. You know, or processing. yeah, there there might not be that as many of them mm -hmm. out there too. That's mm -hmm. a good point. That it, it it is very geographically focused. Um, that is, they're they're popular in Asia. They're popular in Europe to a lesser extent. Not so much in the uh, I guess in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So, I thought you maybe had something. <laughs> okay. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel, YouTube, as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, John Hogeboom. Yep. Thank you, Matt Kaiser. Sure. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.